could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yeah, my name is Aleš Braunichar. I'm born in Slovenia and in these parts of the world, we have some funny little things on our letters. It's quite difficult to say them for some people. So this is exactly how my name sounds. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I'm horrible with languages. And so those little accents are difficult. But I did recently find out that my name is supposed to have an umlaut over it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That must be some German ancestry or something from, from the old country, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I did my family lineage and, and we found out that my what, great, great, great grandfather had named Doles, had a, a, a umlaut over the O and before he immigrated. Oh, that's awesome. You know, just checking back and, you know, you can, you can see where, where your ancestors are without rubbing your nose or tongue in, in, in those swaps of DNA. Well, I'm thinking about doing, uh, like, actually putting the umlaut back in. I'm like, okay. why not? You know, okay. own it's, it. It's a statement for sure. It is, indeed. Well, my wife is Czech now, so, like, you know, I could, you know, embrace the cultural thing in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, when it comes to your work, though, because we're here to talk about you, um, how did you get started? I mean, I, you're now a very prominent photographer, videographer. You do lots of different sort of things in the in the image and moving image field. But how did you get started? Were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers in school? Like, what was the the path to be finding this career? Well, I started trotting on this path of photography. Just you know by myself and i am schooled by experience i have not been to any photography school i've been to faculty for social sciences studying communication but i am self-taught i got bitten by the photography bug at 11 when my father you know took out his shiny chrome 1938 leica and, uh, you know, it was like we were living in the world of compact cameras then, you know, every household had a, a little camera that was as easy to use as possible. And the pictures were really bad, really shitty. And, you know, when I saw that thing from my dad, it was his camera. I was just stunned, you know, I was smitten. It was a very complicated process to get that thing to work, especially when you're a kid who used to just press the button on a compact camera at 11. So, you know, you had to take out the lens and lock it. Then you had to take it out of the little leather bag and, you know, put the film in. And then you had to use the rangefinder to see what you were getting. You had no depth of field preview. You had no, you know, through the lens metering or anything. It was probably the toughest way next to the um, large format camera with bellows to start shooting but it was something that kick-started my photography career in fact and seven years later ten years later i started working at our biggest publishing house you know always being shooting and you know back in those days it was like when you shot a roll of film you had it developed and it took like two weeks to have it developed and you know have the prints and my dad would always take the film to the developers and then we would have to check every picture if it was worthy of enlarging or not 
because you know you never know what a, a little kid shoots. It was then about a decade later that I started working professionally, being a, a part of an editorial stuff for a teenager magazine. It was awesome. It was a great team, a great collective. And being in-house has opened a lot of doors for me for other publications because editorial photography was still a huge thing back then. I was doing like six or seven magazines per month, of fashion mostly and portraits, which was kind of the direction I wanted to go. So since then, it was more than 300 covers, tons of fashion editorials, travel stories as well, like for National Geographic Traveler and stuff, in-flight magazines, also Cosmopolitan, L, Grazia, Maxim, FHM, and of course, Playboy, which was a part of my career for about almost 20 years. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. I'm incredibly envious that you your first camera was a Leica. I mean, my first camera was a medium format Yashica D. <laughs> oh, well, it's still great, you know. It's still it's still the basics of loading film and shooting without a light meter and you know focusing by hand, adjusting f-stop and shutter speed. That is where you learn the basics of photography, and then later comes composing, you know, and later comes telling stories. But the gist of photography, you know, the painting with light and capturing that light correctly on the camera is something you need to do through trial and error, for sure. Well, I personally feel like most young photographers should take some time with medium format and large format cameras because of the flipped upside down and reverse left to right nature of like, you know, forcing you to really think about composition versus the modern digital cameras, which are just sort of very easy and, and don't sort of encourage you to really think and see and learn as much. Absolutely. The large format with your mentioned upside down flip focusing screen is the best tool for learning the process of composition as well. You know, and you have two exposures per box. You have to be really careful what you do and then expose it. And this is how photography should be. But now we just have like millions of useless photographs because it's super easy to press a button and just, you know, you delete it later or you keep it. But is this really different to before when all those useless photographs were kept in a shoebox? I, I don't think so, because the really bad ones get deleted anyway, and, you know, your discs are being the new shoeboxes under the bed now. They are. I mean, I'm a horrible collector. I, I refuse to delete or, or even throw away bad photos. Like, I will keep everything, but I know lots of photographers that delete uh, files and throw away shoeboxes and stuff, which to a certain extent I feel is kind of sad because, like, I've had conversations with people about the idea of legacy planning, sort of like the future of our of our our legacies basically and how th th a lot of those people need to research basically our mistakes or, or things that we didn't work for us and and so like in order to create a, a legacy for us we need to keep that extra stuff and so if we throw away or delete all these things then we're leaving less for the future scholars to research us we are but then again the huge mass of huge amount of photographs that 
is being taken, you know, not only by photographers, but also, you know, from webcams and, you know, from this and that, it's going to leave a massive documentation of time, unlike anything before in history and all the videos and whatnot. So I think it's a good thing, but also a bad thing because eventually in 2009 or thereabouts, the photography market, just like a lot of other markets, craft markets and, you know, music uh, markets crashed because the supply just went so much over the demand. It's a good thing now that everybody can be a photographer. Everybody can do photography like as a hobby for cheap. And a lot of old school photographers are very angry. I'm a pioneer photographer with a smartphone. And a lot of my colleagues are bitching about it. Like, you know, that's not real photography. But, uh, oh, I couldn't disagree more because it's a path and a direction where everything is eventually going. When phones will become good enough for everything and this computational photography will be indistinguishable from regular photography, you know, regular digital photography. It's going to be just smartphones, always a camera in your pocket, always the best one because it's there, you know, as they say, the best camera is the one you have on you. I can't wait. Uh, I am being burdened by the weight and the equipment, um, you know, every camera being its own universe with menus. I use four systems at the moment. Of course, my main one is the legacy one from my childhood. It's not always easy to, you know, concentrate on the job and then also concentrate on the uh, perimeters of the camera, which varies from, from one make to the other. And I guess it's kind of a you know, mixed evil. I, I need a medium format camera, which has a completely different user interface and user experience to my little rangefinder camera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess it's one of the additional things you have to think about when, when, when doing work, you know, how to tamper with your camera and how to, you know, conquer your camera to have a smooth workflow. Agreed. I mean, I stopped taking pictures about, I don't know, five years ago because to a certain extent, I felt like there's just too much in the world that I don't know what more I have to offer. I mean, that that nature of like, you know, with Instagram and cell phone cameras and all this, like there's so such a proliferation of photographs in the world in, in a way that's never existed before that it's sort of like, how do you find something really new and different and unique and something that will grab people's attention and their interest because there is such a sheer volume of stuff in the world? That is absolutely correct. And uh, I've, been, I've been teaching photography for seven years. We've been uh, having, uh, we had workshops uh, all around the world from, from Bali to Namibia, from Miami to, you know, Greece. And the first thing I said to my students was, you need to find a niche. You need to find something that will make you stand out in this flood of complete, you know, oversaturation on the market. So you can be super successful and super unique, but you need to find your niche and you need to find your style that's going to show exactly how 
you put yourself into those images. So every time somebody will take a look and check, they will say, oh, it's that guy. I recognize him immediately from his pictures. And it took me about 20 years to develop my style through trial and error and through, you know, inspiration and through checking other photographers and other artists as well, you know, from Peter Lindbergh to to Rembrandt. It's awesome because every little part of what we know and what we see enters our perception and then makes our vision and shapes our vision in a certain way. So I think it's super important to develop your style and in this enormous market, as I said before, to develop a niche, which will, you know, you don't have to do it forcibly, but if you succeed in that, you're going to be super, super successful. And especially with the Gen Z crowd, you're going to stand out. Well, that niche thing and the style thing, I mean, I, yeah, I'm a bit of a, uh, an outlier on this, but like, I, sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's magnificent. It can give you great success and all this, but, but after a while, it's going to get boring to do it the same st- niche thing in the same style. And I, I'm easily bored. So for me, that's just like death to me. So that I'm constantly changing and evolving. And I feel like it, it's not just necessarily because in the old days, it was very much that like, you know, get a style and it's very recognizable. And therefore, like anybody who's going to hire you or buy your work is going to go like, oh, that's the iconic style and look of a, of a photographer. But I feel like these days there's a bit more of a underlying sort of a, maybe a, a concept that needs to be the, the thing instead of necessarily a visual style, because I feel like there's the need with, again, with the, like the speed and the quantity of photography being produced to be showing an evolution and a growth of your style and your work rather than necessarily find a single thing and stay with that for the rest of your career. Do you feel that way? Well, Yes and no. I think it's still a thing of, you know, personal expression to how much you put yourself in the pictures uh, so they are successful, you know, in, in a way of your mind and what you know. That's that's like everything is rooted in one or several ideas we have in our heads about life and the philosophy on life and everything and how we see art and, and whatnot. But I agree with the part where repeating one thing all the time becomes boring. Absolutely. And that's why every photographer needs to be a chameleon and reinvent himself or herself at some point to try something new. Because if you're going to just play the same trumpet all the time with the same tune, it is going to be boring eventually. You know, you're going to be a one hit wonder like a lot of musicians and whatnot. It's a process. It's a growth process in life as well, an evolution of your photography. And it has nothing to do with the equipment that you use or nothing to do with, you know, things you do in life. It just has to stem from you from the inside. Well, see, and that's the thing that I think a lot of artists in general, but also specifically photographers sort of fixate on. They think that when the the words niche and style are thrown out, they believe that that means like a 
technique or a an equipment or a lighting style or a, something like this something that basically i find is the wrong thing to be thinking of because the, all of that stuff is is basically repeatable by anybody else so like if you're quote unquote style is like a lighting technique, let's say. Well, any other photographer can steal that lighting technique. So that is nothing unique to you. So like, it's not about equipment. It's not about even the subject matter. It's about like the way you approach it and the way you interpret it and the way you address it and things like this. And I think that's a misunderstanding that a lot of young artists and photographers sort of you know, they, they think it's about materials and equipment, but it's really not. Absolutely. And, you know, I have my lighting guide out. It's like written word by word, how to light. So every F-stop, every setting of the light, the power of the lights, you know, the modifiers used, everything you put in a picture that looks great. But still, even though I give all those settings on a silver platter, 95% of people will never be able to do the same photo with all the intel as I did. Like, that's really funny. And that's really interesting, a phenomenon I've been studying lately. You know, how even though a lot of photographers now are giving away their like secrets, industry secrets. <laughs> I love that word industry because it's stupid and funny and cool at the same time. You know, the industry, it's like, <laughs> you know, like a big monster that's lurking and, and on the prowl for you and waiting for, for to embrace you. But it's just, you know... I find the word secret funnier, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was mostly a very toxic thing, the industry. There was a lot of bad stuff going on in that industry, just like I guess in any industry. And it used to suck you up and chew you and spit you out. The problem with the industry is it has changed enormously as well. It's very individualized now, you know, it's like micro managed for certain needs. So if I were a art director in an agency, I would call somebody that only does, you know, bread photos, which are really artistic. If I wanted to convey a message about a new type of um, sourdough bread that's coming to the market to appeal to those audiences who follow those hashtags on Instagram, for instance, before you just use the photographer that does everything, you know, still life related for, for a shoot, for a food product shot. But now it's also micromanaged in that way that the agencies take photographers that are really, you know, doing something out of the ordinary to shoot. And they are then advertising it with influencers on a micro level which don't have a lot of followers, but have a full-on engagement for that subject. So uh, the marketing I studied has changed completely, as has the photography I have not studied, but learned by myself. The biggest problem of today that uh, I see, it's so much average stuff out there. The, uh, average is the, 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 the winner because people don't have more than five seconds to consume. They go ahead and just flip. You know, it, it has to capture you. Every video you make has to capture you in a few seconds. Otherwise, it's lost to the flood of information that's available online today. If you turn on the TV, if you go through the newspapers, you know, there's very little need for perfection in the world of mass consumerism. And that's why 
some of us creative people are still fighting this average approach to photography, like averageness, uh, because we need something that gives us motivation. We need challenges. And we are a little bit masochist in that way, I guess. But I'm still lingering to that idea that, you know, if I try harder, the results are going to be better. Regardless, you know, if I could have gotten away with something easier, I will not do it. I will try harder. Yeah, I'm always saddened when I see news, like so photojournalism and things like this. And it's just like a cell phone photo by somebody who was just there or a cell phone video or even like, quote unquote, news that's being published like from Twitter accounts or Instagram accounts. And I'm just like, what happened to like that high quality level? I mean, the amount of mediocrity is ridiculous. And it, I, like things like I keep hearing words like it's good enough. And that just drives me fucking nuts because, I mean, why strive for a life that's good enough? Like when I get up in the morning, I don't go, hey, you know what I want today? I want a good enough day. Like I want a, I want a spectacular day. I want to make amazing imagery. I want to really push my limits and push other people's expectations of me. There's such a sense of just, you know, acceptance of mediocrity. And it's very disheartening for me. And maybe it's a generational thing. I think we're approximately the same age. Yeah, there, there has been a huge shift even with millennials and now especially with Gen Z. What is perfection and how it's treated? Because, you know, it's, it's the flood of content plus the multitasking of the new generation, which they can do several things at once, but once they sit down and try to read a book, they can't concentrate anymore. That's also another way of looking. So so imagine a video online. As I said, if it doesn't capture your attention in a few seconds, you switch it off, you skip it, it's gone. Averageness and imperfection is sometimes now even a formula for success because a lot of YouTubers deliberately insert some mistakes into their videos so people can then chew on that bone and just you know talk about it and they make their engagement larger plus you know they constantly and firmly nerve the audience with some things they say so people bitch and people talk, but they do talk. So, you know, old school producers and old school, like old school, we, we're not very old school. I'm uh, Generation X, but, you know, there's like baby boomers who are like, oh my God, they wh what's going on? But it is it is a formula for success because, you know, engagement is there and engagement is king these days for marketing, especially, you know, active audience that then wants an update after it pours the anger on that mistake that was deliberately made and their own opinion in the comments, you can say something finally, you know, it's awesome. And the old school producers, as I was saying, and editors are angry because, you know, you cannot form a recipe for content like that. There's no, it has to be spontaneous and it has to be improvised. You cannot put it into a marketing, just like the generations, the, the, the baby boomers, the generation X, the millennials, the generation Z, etc. It's all a marketing thing. It is impossible to draft a marketing scenario for something spontaneous, which will have 
like imperfection inside, which will have something that will nerve the audience and whatnot. And that's what gives the content individuality. And I think this individuality is key to audience engagement and is key to success if we look at the video. The word relatability keeps getting thrown at me and how people, they don't want to see images of quote unquote like perfection because a lot of us can't relate to it. I mean, you know, if you look to, I don't know, Victoria's Secret or Playboy, which you've done, like it, it gave off a, a false sense of, you know, body disfigurement for women. There's then there, of course, then there's, you know, the nature of like editorial stuff where it used to be very much about like create a world that people would aspire to, whereas now it's more of create a world that people can actually attain and relate to. And so the, the, the direction that of imagery itself has very much changed paradigm shift so you know as with playboy it is going to be a hot topic now because you know billions of women are responding to their inner call to wake up and you know become equal member of the society away from the toxic masculinity and this very male-oriented world which playboy was also part of since the 50s was telling them to stay at home and be housewives and it couldn't be further from their wishes because you know absolutely the fight for the equality and the fight for you know putting away the toxic masculinity is is a big one there is also a toxic femininity you know you have to go hand in hand the last decade has seen especially last few years is a crazy change in perception and one of the biggest changes can be seen in men's magazines in fact you know because fewer and fewer men are turning to men's magazines for guidance of their role um you know how to dress how how to do things at workplace how to do hobbies it's funny that all those editorial strategies that have been there since the war have become completely unrecognizable in the past few years you know Playboy has at some point decided, and it's a good, it was a good decision that uh, appealing primarily to men is no longer the best way forward. And they changed from, you know, entertainment for men to entertainment for all. They started putting men in fishnet nylons in there. They started to cater to queer communities. They started to, uh, you know, publish different things. At, at some point, they even abolished nudity because they thought it's going to help with marketing. But that was like, that was a tough move because the legacy of so many years with nudity was like, um, you know, too, too grand. They had to put that back at some point. But, you know, Playboy is now digital only, traveled far from Hugh Hefner's original conceptions. It has fallen a lot, you know. Uh, the last printed issue was from 7 million monthly copies in the at its peak in the 70s to half a million copies per issue. So it was a logical thing to decide. And with the abolishment of press as well, and they cited Corona as the reason to go online, digital only. You know, what was the post-war economic boom that would allow Playboy to reach that huge audience. And, uh, you know, the uh, sex lib of the 70s is completely upside down now. And it, it, it's no longer worth to celebrate a heterosexual male 
according to Playboy. And uh, it's a logical thing, you know, at, uh, in this day and age. Well, I'm interested in the, like, the way that that whole kinds of like loss of editorial and all this kind of stuff is then sort of trickling down to affect the photographers. Because in the old days, I know that like they would give you a huge budget, a travel budget, your pick of models, lots of money and, and locations and all this kind of stuff and time to like do the shoots and all this. And these days, of course, the, everything is about speed and efficiency and all this. And of course, they're also not paying paying photographers anywhere near the amount of money that they used to pay because in the old days you know it was a worldwide rights and all this kind of jazz and now it's just online rights and by the fact that they simply have to produce a larger quantity of it because you know it's expected more often than once a month the quality and the the amount of money invested and then therefore the amount of money earned and the amount of quality images made by photographers is then also going down as well and i'm concerned about the fact that the industry as a whole like a lot of photographers are having to while they they want to be niche, they have to diversify in order to continue to make a living because no single thing like, let's say, we're just shooting for Playboy will sustain you these days. No, not only that, you know, what happened was even worse than you could imagine. So do tell at some point when when they were starting to sell out franchises, uh, Playboy was always about franchises. You know, you'd have to pay and you'd have a franchise in your country. So anybody could buy a franchise for any country. At some point, people who bought the franchises realized they have no money to pay photographers. And they said, oh, let us do something different. Let us charge photographers and models. Let's change the business model to, you know, Anybody can be published in Playboy, several editions, of course, not the US and most European ones. Several uh, editions did that. So if you want to be published in Playboy, you got to pay. You got to pay for the cover and you got to pay for the pictorial inside. So it was like, whoa. And at first it was illegal. Playboy didn't allow it, but they were still doing it. Later on, it was very open and, you know, it attracted a slightly different crowd to what Hugh Hefner was publishing back then to those magazines. But uh, I think it's still going on. Playboy has cut lots of international issues a lot. I think there's only two left in Europe, regular ones. They never succumbed to, to, to that. But some editions are, you know, like all about you pay, we publish. And it's it's really funny, the, the change of the business model that has, uh, I cannot say if it's bad or good, you know, but it most definitely says something about the quality, not going through a filter of editors and, you know, CEOs and whatnot. It just, you know, here's my money, publish it. That's a huge difference to what it was about 10 years ago. Again, that sort of just relates back to mediocrity. Like, I mean, I feel like a lot of that sort of breakdown of lack of editors and lack of sort of decision makers, taste makers, things like this is making it so that like the entire uh, sort of industry wide idea of like standards is, is really being diminished because I mean, anybody could have a blog, anybody could have a podcast, anybody could have a YouTube channel. While the democratization is fabulous because I mean, I wouldn't exist without it. And uh, you know, there at least this podcast wouldn't exist without it. But on the flip side of it, I feel like it's a bit 
damaging to a lot of industries and a lot of jobs, you know, because like you used to get paid very well, I'm sure, to do a lot of these editorial shoots, whereas now you can't get paid. They just aren't going to pay that. Absolutely. And, you know, I left voluntarily. I left Playboy a few years ago and then it folded all over Europe. I found my way of, you know, producing the pictorials because, you know, today photographers have to be producers and, you know, directors and managers. And then they have to be like psychiatrists and boyfriends to the girls they shoot almost. And they have to be like, you know, very, very good leaders and everything. They have to have Photoshop skills, marketing skills, editing skills, and (laughs) at the end, still the shooting skills. We managed to get along. I managed to produce more than 40 or 50, I don't remember, international shoots all around the world from Brazil to, you know, Africa, from Southeast Asia to far parts of Europe to Ireland, because, you know, it was it was something I loved doing. When Playboy stopped going around and, you know, sending us around, I said, wow, I want to continue doing that. And, you know, I found a way, I found my business model to still do that. The problem is, yeah, at some point it was just, you know, on the verge of, oh, I can't do this anymore. You know, Uh, my work is much more cherished and must be, you know, properly compensated. It was just impossible because there was not a lot of money at the editor's desk. It was, it was a natural thing for me to leave. Plus, at some moment, I quit believing shooting for, for men magazines is still okay in my world, my little universe. So, you know, I still support women that want to be shot nude, and I, we still do it. I would not do it now for a magazine anymore and whatnot. Just, you know, if somebody has individual wishes, we do it. There's a lot of OnlyFans now. There's a lot of Patreon sites where girls can also be their own publishers and have their own little playboys and mostly are more successful. Some some are more successful than if they were just to appear in Playboy, for instance, or any girls' magazine. But the stigma of those sites like OnlyFans is everybody thinks it's just porn. It's luckily not OnlyFans is really trying to clean the slate and be like more for like publishing artists, musicians, like scriptwriters, cooks, and whatnot. The pandemics has spawned a lot of you know passive income for a lot of girls doing a lot of nasty stuff on on OnlyFans. So it's a bit stigmatized. It's not easy for a lot of girls to go and be there because everybody thinks it's porn. It's not porn always you know some some girls just want to do an uncensored version of their own instagram there but you know get like eaten by the public opinion that it's it's oh it's nastiness it's it's not nastiness you know it's whatever you want it to be it's kind of a big problem now is that men are judging women that like to be expressed through their nudity and men think they're sluts but you know it's terrible because why would successful women not be posing nude? I don't understand that. You know, nudity empowers some people, modesty empowers other people. So it's never a man's thing to judge what empowers a woman. So this toxicity has to be, you know, deleted 
from the state of mind of people before we can be a better society. You brought up so many topics. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trouble focusing on just one or Write two. Write them down. <laughs> I, I, I do. I keep notes here. I've got notes. But I, I mean, the, the thing that I first picked up on was the you, you talked about sort of the diversity of stuff. And one thing that I am have a pet peeve about, which, you know, it, which to a certain extent is the reason why I, I sort of bowed out of, of trying, even trying to fight for all these scraps of jobs is the, the again, sort of generalists, like, because these days when I started doing photo shoots 20 some odd years ago, it was, you know, you go and you do your photos and then they will also hire a videographer to come and do some videos and they will hire then a writer to come and write a story. And they, and now f people who are trained in photography, people who have an expertise and a mastery of photography are now expected to not only go and take beautiful photos, but they're also expected to then make a little video essay of it and write captions and stories and whatever else is necessary for this entire, you know, it, endeavor and i find that's just sort of very disappointing in many ways with the because i feel like it's creating more what i call generalists so it's like photographers who also do video who also write and and basically sort of a jack of all trades of the different aspects but they're really not masterful at any of them in the way that you know traditionally these people have been yeah i don't think you need to be the master of anything at the moment to get money because you know uh, the you being a master is not being gratified financially by anybody anymore i guess that's my feeling yes yeah except you know very very narrow you know jobs or very narrow you know things that you know there's no competition for in one way we have to say fuck it it is what it is you know, there's going to be a videographer, photographer, uh, reporter, all in one, you know, and photographers are going to charge very little money and uh, editors will pay very little for those stories. You pay a monthly subscription, which is super low and have unlimited like, access to stock. Why would you even need a photographer, you know, at the end? Commercials are being made out of stock footage alone on the television, some TV ads. So, because I'm also a director, I, I also do that. And, you know, I see now how this has changed as well. How uh, advertising agencies are, you know, cut down to 10% of their financing as opposed to what what was there 20 years ago. If you, you were in advertising, you would have infinite amounts of money and could do anything. You remember that. I do. I, I used to work at a stock photography agency back in the day, and we used to sell single images for tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for like worldwide campaigns and things like this. But I feel like, again, like sense of mediocrity and again, like the lowbrow sort of feel of it all, like even stock imagery these days, like as a producer of stock imagery, it's more about volume than it is necessarily about like hitting the right market. Like I feel like stock photography is more like find a thousand clients to pay a dollar rather than find one client to pay a thousand dollars. Absolutely. There's two big, big problems there. The volume definitely is the main thing to earn money, the main way. 
absolutely you cannot earn money with good photos anymore uh, because it's flooded. It's, it's crazy. The other thing is you never know how much one image sells for. And then when I get a few cents from a stock photo, you know, because it was a subscription thing, you know, I'm really, really sad at, at that point, you know, because I could get a few hundred or more a little while ago, but now, you know, it's just pennies. So where's the motivation in that, you know, and then it's a full circle again, you stop being creative, you just do volume, 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 of course, the quality suffers with volume. And we're back at the first topic that we discussed, you know, it's all a cycle. Indeed. I mean, you also brought up censorship and, and that kind of stuff. That thing's a, another thing that sort of gets me going, because I really hate that basically the world's standards are being set by American puritanical rules, whereas those are not, you know, uh, culturally like appropriate necessarily throughout the world. I mean, obviously there's the, the female nipple issue throughout the world, like because Americans feel uncomfortable with it, therefore everybody else must feel uncomfortable with it. And I really am quite uh, sort of vexed by why we just allow that to happen. Uh, it's a great topic and a great subject to talk. It was like that. Uh, there were no nipples on the cover of, of men's magazines in the States. And there were also no like naked women in fashion magazines in the States. But in Europe, you know, there was like uh, Marie Claire or Vogue. And there was a nude editorial for skincare. And then you'd have every issue of Playboy was a completely naked woman where nobody bothered to have that on their desk, you know, but that, and, and there were even page six girls in Britain where they were like three, topless yeah. girls exactly. or page three. Page yeah. Three, uh, that were like a landmark of, I think the sun that started that and they had celebrities, they had all kinds of girls just, you know, semi, semi new, but you know, enough to, to, uh, spawn, uh, you know, the imagination of, of horny men. By Facebook and Instagram standards, inappropriate. Absolutely. So all the censorship that's going on right now on Instagram, Instagram is really choking every author that wants to express him or herself a little bit more in the sense of censorship and threats that uh, after a few, you know, uh, exclusions of maybe a little bit of, you know, shady stuff that according to them is not according to community standards, they will delete your account. And a lot of girls have had their accounts deleted because they were posting some sexy stuff where they wanted to express themselves, uh, you know, more freely and whatnot. And like a sinus wave where there's a change in the aspect of nudity uh, in the society Back in Yugoslavia, you know, everything was all about nudity. Everything. There were like nude beaches everywhere. Half of people from former Yugoslavia are still nudists. There was like nudity on every possible magazine, on computer magazines, on, you know, science magazines, whatnot. It, it was a generally accepted thing in movies everywhere. After 30 years since there's no more Yugoslavia, that has changed enormously. Every country has adopted the American way of Puritanism. And, uh, you know, it's bad now if you want to go commando, you know, uh, at any point, you know, you're a weirdo. 
But I guess, you know, from, from women's liberations, asking and demanding from the society that they accept them as naked as they want to be, if I just simplify it, oversimplify it, to this closing and, you know, shutting down of body aesthetics, you know, I think it's a logical thing. It, it comes with the times. The, the times are dark. And in every dark times, that thing shuts itself down. Indeed. Let's try and get on to a brighter topic. I feel like we've gone a bit depressing. So <laughs> you, talk, you, you talked about workshops. I love the idea of running workshops, but I'm always like, I sit back and I'm like, okay, but what do I as a, as a creative person have to offer as, as a workshop topic or anything like that, that's somehow different or unique or anything like that. And I find it, you know, so like, how did you come up with the idea of like what to do for a workshop? And for that matter, I mean, have they worked for you? Like, because I'm, I'm sure they're not all incredibly successful and all that. I was a part of a team of Playboy photographers that said, for the first time in history, let us share the knowledge that we got by shooting centerfolds and uh, show them how it is to shoot either with natural light in the field or on location or with 30 strobes on gobo arms and, you know, super complicated grids and CTO gels in the studio. So this was super amazing because, you know, every photographer from the group was a different kind of material, a different shooter and had a different style. So each one of us was like a very unique and then we had groups that would alternate from one to the other or some people wanted to see those super complex strobe uh, you know setups in the studio and others wanted to see you know just how you tame the light with a reflector or two you know because they don't didn't want to fiddle with the studio i was always about natural light and taming the natural light so that was my field and we actually showed them how to do it all of that and then to top it off we would actually shoot a pictorial for playboy at the workshop while they were watching and then it was published in the magazine so they could see it was a real deal i think it was it was quite nice uh, 7 years was a great time of doing that but as idea of men's magazines declined so has this uh, sharing of information uh, for shooting centerfolds. It was a natural, you know, evolution. Um, I've had really amazing time doing it, but now I would not do it anymore. Fair enough. The, something else you brought up earlier too was about the, how the pandemic has basically affected stuff. So, like, directly with you and your career and all this, how has the pandemic? Because I mean, at this point, we're almost two years into this, how has it sort of affected in, in different ways, whether it's, you know, opportunities or even sort of having to diversify? Because I've also noticed that you do like drone work now and you're also a DP and a director and others and you sort of branched out into different things. So like, has this been sort of a, a, a an offshoot or a, a cause and effect for, because of the pandemic? 
it was it was both bad because at the beginning we didn't know we had a curfew for 180 days here and uh you know we couldn't work we had to stay at home we were in a lockdown we couldn't actually physically work it was super depressing and nobody knew how this will how this is going to be at a later stage is it going to get worse or whatever and you know a lot of photographers got depressed a lot of photographers got you know had to quit it was if you entered the the lockdowns the pandemics like with a healthy company your own business you could survive but if you if you were already you know in debt or if it was shady for you or you 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 were having difficulties finding work then you you just quit a lot of photographers quit i was lucky to to be able to go through the pandemics without much consequence and it gave me new opportunities to express myself even further um i was droning even before like 2016 i started shooting drones and flying drones uh commercially i started directing at that time as well it was very good because you know when you were fed up with everything you would go out and you just fly and then you would make some really nice photos you would send them to some competitions i won several gold medals and whatnot from well-known photography societies for for my drone work you know you have to make everything an opportunity and so the lockdown and uh pandemic was also an opportunity for me i must say i stayed creative i did not go into my cocoon and started feeling sorry for myself it was i managed to go i hope we're at the end now <laughs> i'll never know how this will age <laughs> my sentence but uh, you know um i'm i'm ready to you know explode again yeah there have been a lot of creative people i've talked to who've said that basically like the ability to not feel obligated to do xyz has actually given them some time and space to sort of reinvent and reinvigorate their own creativity yeah that's 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 a very good topic as well because you know a lot of people deal with uh failure differently so uh, a lot of people can't cope with failure and uh, deal. They, they, they just like, imagine a scientist giving up every time an experiment would not, you know, be a success, you know. The world would have no discoveries at all. And it's, uh, a failure is also a great way or, or inability to work and, you know, just having to, you know, think and dive into your, your mind further back, which you cannot do while you were always like working and always having to do with uh, offers, meetings and editing and whatnot. You know, failure is a great way to learning new things. I think the biggest problem with people is they set their goals at a certain bar on a letter. If I use this metaphor, they set a bar on a letter and once they reach it, that's it. That's that's the problem, you know? You don't have to set yourself that bar. You have to climb as high as you can. That is success in the end. Because once you reach that bar and just stay in your comfort zone, that is the biggest, you know, problem or maybe not a problem, the biggest barrier for your further success. 
Well, even that just the definition of success is a, is a very subjective thing. Cause like when I was a kid, my idea of success was uh, a retrospective at the Guggenheim. Whereas like now my definition of success would be earning enough money to just can be able to afford to do the next project I want to do. Well, that's amazing that you said that because a lot of people think about that. And this is what spawns mediocrity. And we're back at stage one, just earning money, you know, to be able to, you know, thrive and, you know, just be happy and travel a little, but have enough, not have a lot, but have enough. And you're just going to do as much work as needed for that. And that's it. And it doesn't doesn't have to be important how, how that work will look because, you know, you're going to earn anyway. So this philosophy is, you know, I, I have that philosophy sometimes as well. I just want to have some money out of this, you know, so, you know, but it's it's a trap. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. When I say mon- enough money, it's a, it's a quite large sum of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, I want to make yeah, big work. I want to make colossal works. I want to, you know, masterpieces. I don't want to just like just, you know, sit around my coffee table and, and make things for Etsy. You know, I really want to push the bounds of stuff. It, it is, I mean, maybe I have like lowered my standards. That's sort of sad to think, but I, I hope I haven't. I mean, I still want the that a retrospective at the Guggenheim, but I'm aware that it, it, there are certain career paths that probably I should have taken younger in my career that I didn't. And, and so therefore, I'm sort of not on that path at this moment. Now, hopefully, I can sort of divert myself back to that path. That would be magnificent, but so be it at this point. But you, you also something about you, too, is that I've noticed that you, you have works that you put up for sort of gallery exhibitions. So you have a, a, like a fine art series of works that you do in addition to your editorial and your commercial works. Is that correct? It, it, was, it was a very important part of my career. I just had a just at the start of the pandemics, I had a big exhibition in one of the biggest, uh, you know, culture halls back in my country. Uh, but I have been exhibiting worldwide, Mall Gallery London, Seven Gallery New York, Docu Club Tel Aviv, Art Basel Miami, Slovenia Press Photo Award two times uh, for the story, a journalist story. And, uh, you know, some some little places that I liked also at the airport, our international airport, I had an exhibition there and whatnot. It's awesome. The exhibition is the ultimate high point in, in an artist's life, I guess. Uh, it's super nice to see. It was crowded when uh, with, at my last exhibition, even though uh, in February 2020. In March, it, it exploded, but in February, uh, I had the opening and everybody came despite of that threat lingering in the air of the new novel coronavirus so it was it was amazing you know nobody got sick uh, nobody back then of course it was beautiful um, i had a uh, the last exhibition was called goddesses and was like um, my shrine to the divine feminine so uh, every depicted girl on every photo there were 30 photos was named after a goddess from all worldwide mythology, like all around the world, from Nordic to, you know, Greek, from Roman to Mesoamerican, as if they descended from their 
you know, heavenly places to, to the gallery. It was awesome. It was really nice. It was my way of giving back for whatever I took from anybody, you know, during my playboy years <laughs> in, in the spiritual sense of way. Well, there's this old saying that like that, uh, there was some photographer, I can't remember who said it, which is like he had the choice of going down the path of being a magazine photographer, editorial work, or a fine artist. And he chose to go down the, the magazine route because he sat back and he said, if I put up an art exhibition, maybe a thousand people, if he's lucky, might come through during the entire exhibition because it has a physical location and, it, you know, people have to be in that city to see it. Whereas if he goes down magazines, his images could be seen worldwide and it could influence and see be seen by millions of people. And I always found that sort of dilemma of like, if you produce something that's in a specific time, place and all this, you have a limited audience. Whereas if you create something that's intended for sort of the mass consumption, you therefore have a, a much broader reach and therefore more people engage with your work. And that's always sort of been, you know, plagued the back of my mind. Absolutely. But I think you have to do both. So, you know, you have to work for magazines and you have to work for, you know, commercial clients and you have to exhibit in the galleries. And if you're good, if you do uh, what I taught, like, well, if you find your niche and if you're really good technically and like content-wise, because content, of course, is king, then you can sell your limited gallery, you know, pictures from a small gallery anywhere for a big money. So it's like win-win, you know, if you're good. But th there's a big problem for artists while exhibiting, you know. Publishing in the magazine is not much, you know. You just send your pictures to the editor. I remember before we used to take our slides, my medium format slides to the editor with a loop. And then we would check on a light box and then we would do mark and then take them to scan and, you know, have that wet, oily scanner, you know, drum scanner scan them. It was, it was a nice process, but very lengthy. Now you just uh, FTP them. Huh. With the magazine, it's okay. But when you're at an exhibition as an artist, it's very delicate and very intimate because you show your work on a silver platter to the world, you know, and there's like a lot of criticism, you know, going on because everybody there is both there to support you and to judge you. So, you know, if you're not ready to be criticized, it can be very, very bad for you. It can be very downing. Hopefully the criticism is constructive and you can take it as constructive and you can benefit from it. But it is a super intimate moment once an artist shows the world his work. Well, that ability to receive critical feedback is a very difficult balance because I mean, we're all very sensitive artists and we all don't appreciate being overly criticized, but unfortunately it is the nature of the industry to be criticized. And I think part of it is, is that people who are not in the creative industries are the ones doing the criticism and they, they don't sort of necessarily know how to phrase it in some way that is, can be constructive versus people just walking up and going like, I don't like it. 
like you know fuck you <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not that's not helpful that's not insightful that's not in any way uh constructive in a manner yeah you know, they, they, so everybody like, has the right though you know everybody has the right to love you or hate you and that, what i've learned in my experience is like one third of people will love you one third of people will hate you and one third of people just don't give a damn I think you're being very generous with those numbers, actually. I think it's much smaller. <laughs> but do you do prints these days? Because like that's something I've talked to a lot of people about, that the do, the actual nature of making physical prints is, is kind of going away. Well, I come from printing, you know, um, in magazines and, you know, converting my photos to CMYK with the knowledge of how the colors are going to look, what the sum of all those uh, components must be, not to be, you know, overly flooded with color and everything. So I've got to say, I, I fucking hate the industry for the fact that there is that issue. Why can't they get, why can't they just make fucking cameras that shoot in CMYK uh, for uh, people uh, that print, that print in CMYK? Like, why does there have to be this RGB CMYK conversion bullshit in the first place? I find that uh, after all these decades of doing this, that nobody has ever come up with a CMYK camera, ridiculous. Because the CMYK color space is much, much smaller than RGB. That's the problem. And you can't have those saturated, uh, you know, uh, reds and saturated blues. The blues are the first ones to fall away and purples and whatnot in CMYK. But even now, you know, the di digital print goes with RGB. So it's actually good that we have all the cameras that shoot RGB. Uh, okay, so then, we then I'll take files. it the other way. Then I'll take it the other way. Why haven't printers always been RGB? <laughs> yeah, because it was not invented yet. <laughs> that, was, that was the problem, you know, but the digital printing is uh, not that old. Uh, but still, I, I love the old ways. I love the offset prints and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of printing of my own stuff. I used to have a dark room in the cellar, but you would lose a whole day developing film and developing those prints. It took too much time. So I do a lot of analog still, uh, not as much as I want it. I have a lot of analog cameras still. I'm lacking medium format analog because that was my main work thing. And at some point, I was so fed up with film that I couldn't touch it for the better part of 10 years because I was so happy in 2003 when I switched to digital. It was like a new world. It was really shitty digital cameras back then. But, you know, it was good enough for publishing. I was, I was just like, keep that thing away from me. And now as the film is, you know, scarcer and uh, more scarce and more expensive, it's getting a huge revival from the people who love analog and love that feeling because you still cannot uh, faithfully reproduce the feel of a Portra 400 in digital, for example. Agreed. I'm a huge fan of analog film. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And, you know, now that there's like just a tiny, tiny amount of emulsions left from what was available back then. Some of the good ones are still here. It's great to see the interest peaking in film, but it's not great to see the prices going up like crazy, you know. Soon it's going to be like, 10 euros for a roll of film plus development plus scanning. I do my scanning, but it's quite a lot, 
You know, it used to be the cheaper version before, but now it's not anymore. Yes, I know. It's sad, but true. But one one thing I was wondering about you is like, you've been doing lots of work all over the world. You've been traveling a lot. You've been doing all these things. And yet you've chosen to stay in your home country. I'm wondering sort of why you've chosen that. I was just this. He shows a quarter of an inch, you know, with his fingers, but you cannot see. I was this far from moving to America. At some point, I had all the papers there with the lawyer. I had, uh, you know, for for applying for a, first the visa, of course, then the green card. And I just didn't do it because, you know, oh, I will never know if it was a good decision or a bad decision. I am in my comfort zone here, which is great. I know everybody. Everything is one phone call away. The The clients know me and I know the people from the industry that are around me, but it is a guarantee for you not to grow as a person or as an artist in a country of 2 million people. You cannot because the market's too small, everything's too small. You can do it online, of course. And that was the other thing that was my prompt not to move. I said, I can do a lot of things over the World Wide Web you know, market myself and search for new markets uh, via internet. And uh, it was quite okay. It was a success in some ways. I've had my work published in all sorts of international magazines, online magazines as well. But I still think you have to be physically present somewhere to really benefit from, you know, moving to another country. It is not enough to be just online in your own, you know, home behind the computer. I always wanted to have a job where I could work from anywhere in the world, like UX, UI designers or designers in general. You know, I have to be physically present, unfortunately, to make the photograph. I'm not sorry. I guess uh, I guess it's fine. Yeah, I'm not judging at all. I mean, one of the things that I've realized in my career is, is that I moved too often. I, you know, I moved to like four different places in the United States. Then I moved to the United Arab Emirates. And now I'm in Europe. And the lack of foundation of a network, because I kept changing locations, I feel was detrimental to my growth and my career. And so I was just sort of wondering, like if basically staying in one place as your hub, your sort of central location, and then sort of branching out, but keeping that foundation in your home country was of a great benefit to you in contrast to the detriment it was to me. Yeah, I think everybody would like look at it in a different way. Like if you moved a lot, you'd say, well, why didn't I stay based somewhere? And if you didn't move a lot, you'd say, oh, why didn't I move a lot? You know, but I did travel intensely around the world. You know, I've seen the world. I've been to 107 or 108 countries. I've seen the better part of the world. So it's still the most important thing for me, and I tell everybody that, you have to see things away from your fireplace to know how the world ticks and how, how people are, you know, because some people never leave. In America, most people just stay in America. You know how it is. Oh, I do. I still have people that I grew up with uh, that are still in the same city, and I'm just like, that's so sad. Like, they never even got a passport. They never left the country. Yeah, yeah. And us Europeans, we travel a lot. 
and it's accessible. It's easy with cheap flights. You know, you can do it. Sometimes there's no cheap flights to funny destinations, you know, like uh, Afghanistan or, or, or Yemen or stuff like that, or, or Eritrea or, or places where I've been. But, um, you know, it's everything was an awesome, awesome journey for me. All the trips, all the travels, and I can't wait to continue when this thing clears up a little bit. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it, I guess. Hasta pronto. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The importance and the value of financial support for the arts cannot be overstated. So I would like to express my appreciation for EEA grants from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway for their support in their effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in the Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.